0: In this episode, we extend our knowledge of how rockets work, with the focus on chemical rockets. We'll look at the different types of chemical rocket engines, and explore how they generate thrust. We already talked about the rocket principle in a past episode. And we can create a rocket engine in different ways. If we think back to our rocket principle from before, all we need is some form of energy and some momentum carrier. And the momentum carrier is just the matter that we eject from the rocket to push it in the other direction and the energy is used to propel that matter. When we talked about the rocket equation previously, we used baseballs as the momentum carrier, and the energy was supplied by us throwing the balls. And today, we're going to look at a more realistic rocket engine. In fact, we're going to talk about the most commonly used type of rocket engine and that is the chemical rocket engine. If I asked you to close your eyes and picture a rocket engine right now, the chances are what you're picturing is a chemical rocket engine. And these engines are interesting because the energy source is the same as the ejected matter. In these engines, A chemical reaction creates the gas particles and the energy that's used to propel those particles. We're generating our metaphorical baseballs and giving them velocity at the same time. We take this for granted as part of the combustion, but it is an important detail because not all types of rocket engine have this property. So let us begin by mentioning the different types of chemical rocket, since there are a few. And these different types are differentiated by the state of the propellant, the state of matter. The one we'll be talking about the most is the liquid propellant rocket. In this type of rocket, liquid propellants, or fuel, are fed into a combustion tank, and then burned to produce some thrust. We also have solid fuel rockets, and these have the propellant in a solid state in the chamber, and they're once again burned to produce gases. Since the fuel is solid in this case, it's not usually transported anywhere, and the fuel tank is also the combustion chamber of the rocket. Hybrid rockets have a solid propellant that reacts with some sort of liquid or gas to combust, and these types of rockets have characteristics somewhere in between liquid and solid rockets. Finally, we have monopropellant rockets, and as the name implies, these have only one propellant that is usually decomposed by a catalyst to generate the gas. All these designs have advantages and disadvantages, and they're suited to different tasks. And that's one of the things I love about engineering. There's rarely one ideal solution. Always be skeptical when someone tells you that one thing is better than something else in all regards. We need to consider all the alternatives, and pick something that meets our needs as well as possible but this inevitably results in trade-offs there's a great quote that unfortunately i don't know the source of but it says pardon my language quote any idiot can build a bridge that stands but it takes an engineer to build a bridge that barely stands end quote i love it because on the surface it seems just silly But if you think about it, that's exactly what the engineer does. You're trying to juggle conflicting needs, performance, cost, safety, all to find some trade-off that is satisfactory. So back to the rockets. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of these different types of chemical rocket? We'll start with liquid fuels. These have a high ISP. Do you remember the specific impulse that we've talked about before? That was our measure of efficiency, how much we can change our momentum with a given amount of the fuel. Another benefit to liquid propellant rockets is that sometimes the engines are able to regulate the flow of propellant from the tanks to the combustion chamber. And this can give us the possibility of throttling our engine, or even shutting it off completely. And this can come in very useful for fine-tuning our ascent speed at any point. You might be asking, why are we talking about liquids and not gases? We could use these chemicals in gas form, but the thing is, liquids are denser, so we can fit more fuel into the same space. And this is very important to us, because a larger rocket is a heavier rocket, and that's less efficient. Even if we had the same mass of fuel, the gas would need a larger tank, and the tank itself would be heavier than the smaller one we would need if that was in the liquid form. The thing is, many of the chemicals we want to use Are naturally in gas form at ambient temperatures. And this means if we want to get them into a liquid in order to save space, we need to cool them down. So often these rockets are filled up on the launch pad very shortly before liftoff, and this is to limit the amount of fuel that evaporates. So liquid engines are often used as the main type of engine for modern rockets, because of the control and the great efficiency. Solid propellant rockets were the very first rockets that mankind ever built. At least as far back as the 13th century, gunpowder solid rockets were used by several ancient civilizations. In these rockets, the solid propellant is packed into a combustion chamber. And the distribution of the powder and the size of the chamber can be carefully designed to fine-tune the various thrust profiles that we want. But with these rockets, once ignited, the rocket will continue burning. There are some modern systems that can allow solid booster rockets to be extinguished, but the control is nowhere near as good as for liquid rockets. The efficiency of solid rockets is also lower than for liquid rockets. So what's the upside in this case? Well, solid rockets are very robust. We can store them for a long time, unlike those liquid rocket engines where the liquid was going to evaporate. And Solid rockets are often cheaper than designing a liquid engine. We don't need to think about pumps or any of the plumbing that is involved in those. So for this reason, solid rocket engines are often used as strap-on booster rockets, or in small rockets. They're a relatively simple way of increasing the thrust of a rocket, without having to massively redesign the engine. We do need to remember, however, their drawbacks, especially that they can't be easily shut off once ignited. An interesting example is the space shuttle, which was not able to abort once the SRB's solid rocket boosters were ignited, until after they had burned out and separated, which was around two minutes after the launch. So, obviously, as a result of this, they had to have a lot of checks to make sure that everything was safe before they were igniting those rocket boosters. Hybrid rocket engines attempt to get some of the advantages of both of these previous designs. In these engines, there's one component that is in a solid form that only reacts when it comes in contact with another part of the propellant in a liquid form. By shutting off the flow of liquid, the rocket can be throttled just like a liquid rocket. The storage and transport of these engines can also be safer than liquid or solid rockets, because the propellants won't ignite on their own. Overall, as you might expect, the efficiencies of hybrid rockets are usually somewhere in between those of solid and liquid rockets, solid being lower and liquid having higher efficiency. Monopropellant rocket engines involve a chemical reaction with just one compound. Often this is done in the presence of a catalyst that starts the reaction. The chemical decomposes, creating gases and heat. These engines are very simple and quite reliable, but the efficiency is lower than the other methods. Nevertheless, monopropellant rockets have their niche, when used for control, to rotate or translate our spacecraft once it's in space, or sometimes as the main propulsion on very small vehicles. Let us investigate a simple liquid chemical rocket engine design. At the very simplest, we have a pressurized tank with a hole in one end. The pressure is created by combusting some propellant in a combustion chamber. The gases that are created by the reaction exit through the hole in our tank, and this is the chemical rocket engine that we'll be working with today. In a future episode, I'll talk about some of the details of how you get the fuel where it needs to be. But for now, we assume that all the fuel is already in this chamber. And then when we combust the fuel, we create pressure in that combustion chamber. The pressure pushes on all the walls of the chamber. But, obviously, it cannot exert a force where there is no wall. That is, On the hole. So we get a flow of gas out the hole, and that creates a force due to the imbalance of pressure. We're going to call this hole the throat, and this will become more useful when we get to the design of a nozzle. So far away from the throat, inside the tank, the overall velocity of the gas is pretty much zero, and this value Will increase up to an exit value at the throat. Instead of just having a hole cut in our tank, we find that it's often advantageous to have some sort of shaped nozzle, and I'll get to why that is in just a moment. The typical chemical rocket nozzle is called a converging diverging nozzle, or alternatively, a de Laval nozzle, named for the Swedish inventor Gustav de Laval. My favorite thing about Mr. de Laval is that his greatest inventions are the converging-diverging nozzle and a centrifugal milk-cream separator. To me, that diversity just highlights what a brilliant problem-solver he must have been to be able to solve these issues across such diverse disciplines. Now, in our modern world, some of our technical challenges are becoming more and more complex, and as a result, requiring more and more teamwork to solve. Having people become increasingly specialized in very narrow fields has its advantages in these cases but I can't help but feel that something is lost as well. I have great admiration for people who are very skilled in a field, but even more so when they're able to apply that skill in many different ways. I just hope that as we move towards increased specialization, we don't lose that ability to apply skills broadly or apply skills in ways that we wouldn't think about applying them at first glance. Enough about that, though. If you've ever seen a rocket nozzle, you'll recognize the shape I'm talking about. As the name implies, it first converges to a narrow section, the throat, and then diverges or widens like a bell and the reason for this design will be explained in just a moment. If we assume our rocket engine is an axially symmetric pressure vessel, some sort of tube or cylinder, we can derive equations for the effective thrust of the engine. And the equation we'll look at today is as follows. The thrust that our rocket engine produces Is equal to mass flow rate times velocity plus the exit area multiplied by, in brackets, the exit pressure minus the free stream pressure. So let's break down and try to understand that equation. What we should know first is that the effective thrust is made up of two types of thrust. These are momentum thrust and pressure thrust, and these correspond to the two different terms in our equation, the two terms that get added together. Momentum thrust is the mass flow rate times the exit velocity. If we integrate this expression with respect to time, we get just mass times velocity, And that's exactly a momentum. So mass going one way pushes us the other way. That might have been a little fast, so let's repeat it real quick. Remember, in order to move through space, we need to change our momentum. And our rocket engine creates a thrust, and that's just a force. Now the relationship here is that a force on an object is the rate at which momentum changes with time. If we ever want to double check, we can always just compare the units. Force is measured in newtons, which are equal to kilogram meters per second squared. And we said that momentum was mass times velocity, so the units are kilogram times meters per second. If we want the rate of momentum change, it would be momentum per second, so we divide momentum by another second, and we have kilogram meters per second squared, which is a force. The second term is pressure thrust. And the pressure thrust comes from the difference in pressure between our exit hole and the pressure of the atmosphere multiplied by the area of the exit hole. It's easy to get confused here, and there's also a few explanations for these thrusts that are somewhat misleading. First of all, all the thrust from the rocket engine is generated by pressure. The momentum thrust comes from pressure differences in the chamber that cause mass to flow. But the pressure thrust is an additional thrust that comes from lack of external pressure at the opening. Now, there's some pressure outside the combustion chamber. It could be zero if we're in the vacuum of space. But if we cut a hole in our tank, the external pressure can no longer push on that area. And it's this reduction in counter-thrust, for lack of a better term, or pressure pushing inwards, that means we get an increase in thrust. If you happen to have the pressure at the exit the same as the external pressure, then there's no change from making a hole, and you don't have any pressure thrust. We can see this from the equation, too, because if the two pressures are the same, they subtract to zero. And it doesn't matter what size the opening is, there's no pressure thrust. In a chemical rocket engine, the thrust characteristics are determined by the properties of the propellant. How can we describe how the engine converts the heat of combustion Into thrust. Well, for this, we need to understand a little bit of thermodynamics. And thermodynamics is literally the study of how heat relates to work and energy, the thermo and the dynamics. First, we want to know how much thermal energy there is in a material. That is, how much energy in the temperature. Well, our added thermal energy is equal to the mass of the body times the specific heat capacity times the temperature difference. We already know mass of the body and temperature. Those are simple. We could have a 3 kilogram turkey cooked at 75 degrees Celsius. But the other term is new to us. Heat capacity is a property of materials. It tells us how much energy it takes to raise the temperature of a material by a certain amount. And this is not the same for all substances. It also depends on the temperature of the material. At room temperature, for example, it takes about four times as much energy To increase the temperature of a gram of water as it does for the same mass of air. And this is why water temperature outside is generally less extreme than air temperature. We see water as having a moderating effect because the same amount of energy, for example from the sun, will raise the temperature of a given amount of air. More than for the same amount of water. We can determine a property of our gases called enthalpy, which combines the internal energy we just discussed plus what we call the displacement energy. And the displacement energy is just the product of the gas's pressure and volume. It's telling us how much energy there is in the shape of the gas, or the region it's taking up. Inside our combustion chamber, energy needs to be conserved between any two points. Therefore, we know that kinetic energy plus the enthalpy needs to be constant everywhere. We can transform our energy between this internal energy and this kinetic energy, but we can't destroy it or gain it from nowhere. We also know that mass is conserved everywhere within the chamber. And this just means that mass isn't appearing or disappearing anywhere in our combustion chamber and nozzle. This also means that the flow rate of the mass through our chamber is constant. And mass flow rate is exactly what it sounds like. It's the rate at which our mass, which, remember, is gas particles, flow. The same amount of mass that enters the tube leaves the tube. And at any cross-section of the tube, the amount of mass passing through is the same. Now, if we talk about mass flow density which is the mass flow rate divided by the area of the cross-section, that is not necessarily constant. And this is the volume flow rate of the gas particles. So from this, it tells us that the maximum mass flow density occurs at the area with the smallest cross-section. Remember, that's what we were calling the throat. So if we have a constant mass flow rate and a small opening, that gives us more mass per cross-sectional area. Let us take a brief look into how fluids flow, especially around Mach 1, the speed of sound. We're going to start by visualizing two closed tanks, Connected only by some sort of nozzle. One tank is at a very high pressure, and this is our combustion chamber. The other tank will be at a lower pressure, and this represents the rest of the universe. Now sure, we could do this with our normal tank in the universe, and just think of the flow flowing out of the tank. But I find it's helpful to do the rest of the universe as its own tank, obviously much larger than our rocket tank. But this makes us think of the entire thing as a system. So, since we have a large pressure difference between the two tanks, the gas will flow from the high pressure tank into the low pressure tank. If we have a larger pressure difference, The gas will flow faster. But this is only true up to a certain point. Eventually, the flow rate stops increasing, even if you increase the pressure difference. That is, make it higher inside the chamber or lower in the external environment. I'm not talking here about pressure equalizing between the two tanks, but rather, the flow reaching a limit. When this happens, we say that the nozzle is choked, and this corresponds to the flow speed being Mach 1, the speed of sound. We can't increase the flow rate, no matter how much we increase the pressure difference. We could increase our throat to increase the flow rate, but Once again, at a certain flow rate, even that larger nozzle will again become choked. So if we continue to change the pressure difference, we get supersonic flow occurring past the throat. Now here's the difference. A subsonic flow loses velocity as the area gets bigger. That is the cross-section of the, the nozzle. A supersonic flow will do the opposite, it will accelerate when the area gets bigger. And this comes down to velocity and density of these flows. In subsonic flows, which we're probably more used to, the density is pretty constant. If mass is conserved, then reducing the area increases the velocity. And vice versa. This is why, when you put your finger over a garden hose, which is a subsonic flow, you reduce the area, which in turn increases the velocity of the water and allows you to spray your unsuspecting grandma. But a supersonic flow is what we call compressible, because the fluid density can change much more than for a subsonic flow. So here, a decrease in area increases the density and decreases velocity. If we put all this together, we can get an exhaust velocity that's larger at the exit of the nozzle than it is at the throat. That means we can go above the speed of sound. And a higher exit velocity means higher thrust from our engine and this is the entire purpose of having a nozzle. We start by converging because we want the flow to become choked, so that we can take advantage of the properties of supersonic flows to further increase the velocity. If we had subsonic flow through the throat of our nozzle, the exit velocity would be very slow, and the diverging part would actually work against us. In this case, we should increase our mass flow rate until it becomes choked at the throat. Or, if we can't do that, we can reduce the area of the throat in order to accomplish the same thing. It might still seem paradoxical that the flow velocity increases as the pressure decreases. We know that a gas that expands has a reduced pressure and temperature. And remember how we talked before about the conservation of energy of the gas? The total energy was made up of the enthalpy and the kinetic energy. And again, this total stays constant because of the conservation of energy. This is one of those fundamental concepts that will keep helping us again and again. If we decrease the pressure and temperature, we lower the enthalpy of our gas. So to conserve the overall energy, the kinetic energy must increase, which occurs from the increase in the flow velocity. So if we look at this on a big picture way, the expansion is converting part of the microscopic disordered motion, the temperature, into more macroscopic directed motion, the gas flow. As is typical, I've been lying a little bit and treating the maximization of velocity as the same as the maximization of thrust. And this isn't exactly true. Remember that Thrust was actually comprised of momentum thrust and pressure thrust. Expanding the gas in our nozzle increases the velocity, which increases the momentum thrust. But it also decreases the pressure, which decreases our pressure thrust. And this means that we have to find an optimum balance between these two that gives us the highest overall thrust. We can do a bit of calculus on the relevant equations to find the maximum in this case, and it turns out that our overall thrust is the highest when the pressure-thrust term is zero, that is, when the exit pressure is exactly the same as the ambient pressure. We have a name for the type of nozzle that can achieve this, and that is ideally adapted. Basically, for a given external pressure, there's an ideal length of Laval nozzle. Bear in mind that shortening the nozzle will mean that the gas at the exit is at a higher pressure, since it has a smaller area and hence less reduction in pressure. Likewise, if we lengthen the nozzle, we give the flow more length over which to expand and to reduce pressure and hence the exit pressure will be lower. We can also recognize that it's possible for a Laval nozzle not to be ideally adapted. This could be due to poor design, or more likely due to the changing of the external conditions. A typical converging-diverging nozzle is ideal for one specific external pressure. But as the rocket engine ascends from the Earth, the external pressure drops, and the nozzle is no longer at the one external pressure at which it's most efficient. In fact, you can see this effect in action on certain rockets. As the rocket ascends through to the upper atmosphere, the exhaust plume of these rockets will start off narrow and spread out as it gets to the upper atmosphere, because the external pressure is decreasing. So, in addition to our ideal full flow case, the engine could be either overexpanded or underexpanded. Overexpanded flow means that the nozzle is too long, or equally, that the external pressure is too high the nozzle is reducing the gas pressure too much, so that the exit pressure is not equal to the higher ambient pressure, and the nozzle isn't at maximum efficiency. If you were to visualize this, instead of the exhaust plume flowing straight backwards in a column, the plume from an over-expanded nozzle is pinched as it leaves the nozzle. Depending on the amount of overexpansion, the flow may even separate from the walls of the nozzle. On the other hand, underexpansion means that the nozzle is not long enough, and the exit pressure is higher than the ambient pressure. This is also not ideal. Here, we see that the exhaust plume would come out of the end of the nozzle and then expand. Or flare outwards. While neither of these are ideal, of the two scenarios, generally overexpansion is worse, because the flow separates within the nozzle, and this can lead to vibrations that can damage the rocket engine. So we've established that the design environment of a nozzle will determine the amount of expansion and hence the length of that nozzle. And you can use this knowledge to reverse-engineer the use of an unknown rocket engine. If you see an engine with a longer bell, it's causing more expansion, and therefore suited to lower external pressure, i.e. as an upper-stage engine. On the other hand, a shorter bell means less expansion, higher external pressure, and an engine that's better suited to being a first-stage engine within the Earth's, or another planet's, atmosphere. At first mention, the terms over and under-expansion might seem counterintuitive, because in the over-expanded case, the exhaust was narrowed, and for under-expanded, it seems to expand beyond the nozzle. But the key is that we're referring to the nozzle itself and not the exhaust. Overexpansion occurs when the nozzle is trying to overexpand the flow, and the higher external pressure causes it to be pinched. And likewise, underexpansion means the nozzle isn't expanding the gas enough, and so it comes out at a pressure higher than the external pressure. We're going to finish up by mentioning a few points about the precise shape of the nozzle. Really the most important factors here are the ratio of the throat area to the exit area, and the ratio of the internal pressure to external pressure. If we know our propellant, we can define a value called the thrust coefficient, and the thrust coefficient Helps us understand how much our nozzle improves our thrust. And this value just depends on these area ratios and pressure ratios. And it can be graphed out quite nicely. So, using this thrust coefficient can help us to design optimal nozzles. And it can also be used to quantify our reduction in efficiency in case we have over or under expansion. For the shape of our rocket nozzle, we want to keep as much of the momentum coming straight out of the back of the rocket, as opposed to axially or at an angle, because in that case, less of the momentum from the gas is directly pushing us forward. Thermodynamically, as long as the gas is being expanded steadily and what we call adiabatically, the shape is unimportant we can make a simple nozzle just with a cone shape. If we use something like a parabolic nozzle or a bell nozzle, we can increase the efficiency slightly by redirecting the flow to be completely parallel to the axis of the nozzle. But at this point, we get into trade-offs that are beyond the scope of this podcast. For example, a bell that is shorter than the optimal length might be used because the decrease in weight of that nozzle more than compensates for the lower exhaust speed. Of course, when actually designing a nozzle, we have material selection, shock waves, surface roughness, and more in-depth fluid dynamics that all need to be properly considered. Hopefully you're realizing by now that all the topics I discuss have much more depth to them than I can reasonably explore and discuss. And my goal is just always to lay out what I see as the foundation of each of these topics. It's my hope that maybe being introduced to some of these topics helps you to find what you're interested in. And hopefully you'll know what questions to ask in case you want to delve deeper into any specific topic. We had a lot of talk about the converging-diverging nozzles, and I don't want to give you the impression that this is the only possible nozzle. Rocket scientists are pretty clever, and have come up with some interesting different designs. Most of the alternate designs try to solve the problem of adapting the nozzle To a changing atmosphere, since, as we learned, a given converging-diverging nozzle is ideally adapted to only one external pressure. But these exceptions and these other rocket nozzles make for an interesting future topic, and the nozzle types that we've looked at are by far the most common, and they form the theoretical basis for most of the other chemical rocket engine nozzles. So that wraps up this episode. Hopefully now you have an understanding of the types of chemical rocket engine and the basics of how they work to move our rocket. We also had a bit of an introduction to some of the weird phenomena of supersonic flow and how we can use these phenomena to our advantage in a rocket nozzle. There's still a lot of detail we can get into concerning the internal mechanics of the rocket engine, as well as the selection and combustion stage of the propellants, but don't fear, we're going to look into these topics in the future. Don't worry if some ideas today confused you. Take your time to think them over. Maybe try to visualize what's happening in stages. But most importantly, remember to cut yourself a little bit of slack. Because after all, it really is rocket science. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be notified when a new episode is released, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, go ahead and recommend it to them. Together we can teach more people about space. And the best part is, you get a friend who you can learn alongside. If you have any feedback, comments, or ideas, I would be thrilled to hear them. You can contact the show at theastronauticslab.com at gmail dot com until next time, and stay curious, my friend.